We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. Genesis chapter 30, verse 19. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Genesis 30, 19. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage and your word. I pray that you would open our hearts right now as our act of worship to you. May we desire to seek and to find what your word and your will is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Today we continue in our series, Precious, Living a Life Around What Matters Most. Living Life Around What Matters Most. And today's message is entitled, The Beautiful Gift of Life. The Beautiful Gift of Life. Now, we certainly know that God is the author of life, and it is beautiful and precious to Him. For example, and there are so many passages I could share with you, but John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says it this way, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have, what? Life and have it abundantly. God not only wants you to have life, He wants you to have abundant life. God is concerned about your life. He does, he, he's the one that gave you life and me life. He's the author of life. And um, so we know that God is pro-life. In the Bible, life is precious, both in Psalm 22 and Psalm 35, and we don't have time to go there, but the word precious is used in both of those chapters referring to life. So I've been going through this series lately uh, about those things that are precious. Remember I told you in the last few weeks that I did a study of the word precious in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and in most of the times that it's used, the many times that it's used, it's referring to stones. Now those stones may be literal or they may represent something else, but it's usually stones. But there are a handful of times that the word precious is used for something else. The first week, two weeks ago, we looked at how the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ is precious, how our salvation is precious. And the Bible tells us that and explains that to us. Last week, we looked at how the Bible describes wisdom as precious to God. And so today, we see the third statement and the third verse from Genesis 30, 19, that life is a precious gift. I want us to look at what I believe is historically the most defining subject of our time, and oddly, the most controversial, and that is life. In the next few minutes, I want to ask you to do something for me. I want to ask you to forget about politics. It's not easy to do. There's an election coming up in just a couple of days. And so you think about politics then, right here, right now, I'm asking you to do what is not done very often in our country. I want you to forget about politics. I want to focus on God's word and forget. For just a few minutes, there are no Republicans, no Democrats, no independents, no libertarians, no far left and no far right. They don't exist. Oh, that's better already. <laughs> Takes the, take, puts the mayor in the room right there. The reason I want you to do it is because everything has become so politically connected that it becomes difficult to objectively talk about anything. But as followers of Christ, our foundation is not our allegiance to any political party or any government. Our allegiance is to Christ and Him alone. Your political party cannot save you from your sins. Your government cannot redeem you and give you eternal life. Your political party and your government did not create you. And so they are not and cannot be the authority on your life and its value. It is Christ 
and him alone. Also in this world, I want you to consider what is most important to you. What God chooses, what society chooses, or what you choose. That is, will you be directed by God's word, society's word, or your own word? Will you consider what God wants, that is theology, or what society wants, that is sociology, or what you yourself want, that's just selfishness. <laughs> what dictates your life? Who decides in your life what is right and what is wrong? Is it your God, your society, or are you in your mind the very source of right and wrong? So first and foremost, I want us to look at what God's Word has to say, and there are many passages about the value of life, and even life in the womb. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, that famous passage that says, The Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. This is God talking to Jeremiah, but to you and I, did you know that Every day of your life was planned by God for you before you ever entered into that operating room where you were delivered or that house or that hut, wherever you were born. God already had plans for you and for me. That's what he says right there. God already knew us. When we were in our mother's womb, God already knew us. And because he already knew, knew us, that tells me that we weren't dead. We must have been alive. And so that's what it tells us. In Luke chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist is still in the womb of his mother, uh, Elizabeth. And, and Mary comes to see her. And Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And so you have two pregnant women together. Elizabeth and Mary with John the Baptist and Jesus. And Luke 141 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... Uh, the baby leaped in her womb. That's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John leapt in her womb because he got close, close to Jesus Christ. And Jesus was still in the womb. That's a, I've never heard of anything like that happening in history. Now, how was John as a fetus, a preborn child, able to detect the presence of Jesus? I don't know. I'm going to ask in heaven. I don't know. But apparently he was, not apparently, he was able to do that. And he leapt for joy when he came near Christ. So this morning, I want to address some, some, um, some misconceptions that we often hear or see about this important biblical matter. Um, perhaps the one I hear the most is, pro-lifers don't care about women. Or more to the point, if you're pro-life, you are condescending, judgmental, and we know that's bad, so you're just wrong. Well, here's my commitment to you today. I promise I will not condescend to you, and I will not judge you. That is for your Creator to do. I don't know. I have no way of knowing if someone here has had an abortion in their past. Listen, I, I, again, I'm not your judge. It's not my place to judge you. I'll leave that to God. On the other hand, I am a pastor, and it is my obligation to share with you what God's Word says about this matter and every matter. And I must share it without apology. That doesn't make me mean. It just means that I have to share what I believe God's Word says. But I also want you to know, I care about you, whoever you are. I, my goal in my life is to care about you on a level that God cares about you. So I'm not just here to preach at you. I care about you. And I don't stop caring about you if you're a woman or if you're expecting a child. Secondly, there are many tens of millions of women who are also pro-life. In fact, there are a growing number of pro-life feminists in our nation. Not to mention that half of the babies aborted every year uh, are female, would grow up to be women. 
In fact, it's difficult for me to comprehend how being pro-abortion is pro-woman when half of the ones aborted are themselves future women. Just logically, I would argue that the pro-women movement isn't really pro-women, it's pro-some women over other women. Another common misconception surrounds the question of whether or not a fetus is actually alive. In 1973, when our Supreme Court legalized abortion, uh, it's been a while, that was 47 years ago, our medical technology was, I would say pretty bad, it's, it's come a long way. You know, you don't, if, you're, if you don't know what medical technology was like in 1973, just think about computers in 1973. Things have changed a lot since 1973. That predates Apple and Mac and, and, and Windows and all of those things. And so we've learned a lot over the last 47 years And the argument I think that was prevalent at the time, and I say I think, I was pretty young, but I think the argument at the time was what happens in the womb is a big mystery. We don't really know when life starts and how it develops. And so they made some presumptions based on the fact that they did not know. But now, 47 years later, our medical science is far more advanced and has long since ended any doubt as to whether or not a pre-born child is alive. In the womb, children are alive. Did you know that at eight weeks, just eight weeks, two months, babies will respond to sound, they will suck their thumb, they have thumbs, by the way, at eight weeks, and they will react to pain. There are many 3D ultrasounds and videos on YouTube that I'm not going to show you, I don't have time. You got YouTube, you can go look that show preborn babies dancing in their mother's womb. Did you know that? They'll take their phone or something musical, they'll put it up to their belly, and the baby starts dancing. Now, they're not Baptist babies, of course. <laughs> but the babies will dance. There are 3D ultrasounds of twins hugging one another. There's one 3D ultrasound I found on Google of babies, two twins, they were actually kissing one another. Uh, so, I, you know, <laughs> brothers and sisters, I assume, but they were actually kissing one another in the womb. And they were doing what babies do in the womb, acting like babies. So in 2020, the question is no longer, is a preborn baby alive, but rather is a living child less important because they are in the womb? That's the question, and it's a fair question. Is a preborn child less important? Is their life less important than somebody else's life because they're in the womb? You see, in the womb, they are helpless, silent, and dependent on their mother for life. Does that make their life less important? Pastor Matt Chandler, in one of his messages, he mentions an article written by a pro-abortion advocate named Mary Elizabeth Williams. The title of this article is, and I have the the title page for you. Do you see the title? So what if abortion ends life? And she herself has had abortions, and in it she says this, of all the diabolically clever moves the anti-choice lobby, that is pro-lifers, have ever pulled, surely one of the greatest has been its consistent co-opting of the word life. Life, she says. Who wants to argue with that? Who wants to be on the side of not life? I know, she says, that throughout my own pregnancies, I have never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. These are her words. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, she says, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet, a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. And you understand her argument. 
Because that baby is dependent upon her to continue to live, it should be her choice. Her life matters more than the life of the baby, even though she acknowledges it's alive. Now, here's the problem with that thinking. There are a lot of problems with that thinking. But the primary problem with that is, I could say the same thing about your six-month-old child or your two-year-old child. If you must put your two-year-old out on the front porch and said, good luck, I don't think that two-year-old is going to live for very long. This idea of just, just because my life can't survive on their own, therefore their life is not as valuable as my life is not biblical, but it is not logical either. And so that's her thinking. That kind of thinking is as unbiblical as it is horrifying. It is also blatantly unconstitutional, literally, where she says not all life is created equal. You know, our Constitution reads this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created what? Equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Notice the very first right that every person has is the right to exist. I don't know where we got this idea that that is true in every instance except for the preborn. It's not biblical, but it's not even constitutional. Another claim is that Christians don't really care about the unborn or we would be helping pregnant mothers well, this is probably the most inaccurate claim at all. of all. I don't think a lot of those who are pro-choice realize how many opportunities and options there are for those who choose to keep their child. There are over 2,500 pregnancy resource centers across the United States. Almost all of them are centers who provide quality and non-judgmental services, often and usually free, to women from all backgrounds, nationalities, and all walks of life. Many of these centers offer free pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, diapers, and baby supplies, counseling, adoption referrals, and support. One of these centers is just down the road that First Baptist Church supports both in finances and in volunteers, and it's the Eagle Mountain Pregnancy Help Center just outside of Azel. So how should we respond? Well, I can tell you that the primary argument is it's none of your business. It went from it's not really a life, it's just a clump of cells, to now in 2020, it's just none of your business. What I do with my body isn't up to you and it isn't up to the government. Well, that's an interesting statement. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But before I do that, I want to, I want to show you a clip. Now, this is not a, particularly a Christian clip. Um, somebody goes out on the streets and they interview people about whether they're pro-life or, or pro-choice. And the, the answer, the majority, weren't in either category. And it shocked me that the majority of Americans, even those who call themselves Christians, are putting themselves, have invented a third category. Watch this clip. yourself as pro-life, pro-choice, both or neither? <laughs> uh, both. Can you explain that? I wouldn't, but I can't choose for other people. That's kind of what we are as America, is letting, you know, people have their freedom. Should have all legal rights to have an abortion. It's our own rights. 
it's freedom. That's a human being's body, so I think they have the right to have control over their body. I think in situations where the woman had, where it can be proved where the woman had control of the situation, they should not be allowed to abort the baby because they were part of that conscious decision. I would consider myself pro-life. I think that by making it illegal, it, it, it makes it more dangerous for women in the world. I, I identify as pro-choice. something like that. about that and, and all kinds of thoughts flood my mind and uh, uh, some of them just uh, boggle my mind that I can be pro-life and pro-choice and again if you saw the graphic there were more people that were in the middle that were both or neither than one or the other we don't do that with anything else in life I am pro-health food and pro-chicken fried steak it just doesn't, you know, I am, I am staunchly opposed to getting drunk as long as I'm sober. You know, that kind of thing, what kind of thinking is that? And so anyway, um, uh, one guy toward the beginning said he is a Christian and made a compelling argument. Did you notice that? He made a compelling argument that a baby is alive and he said this, he said, these are his words. He said, abortion is murder. But then he said, but that's just my stance. All these laws that make it difficult for a woman to have an abortion, I think that's crazy. He acknowledged his own belief that it's murder, but it's not his place to say. That's, that's, that's staggering to me. If I were driving down the street and I saw somebody with a gun walking towards your house... And I said nothing and did nothing. And I thought, well, I think it's wrong that they murder you. But who am I to say? And so they go in the house and shoot you, shoot you between the eyes. The police come and I tell them, yeah, I saw him heading to the house. They're going to say, did you call 911? Well, no, who am I to say? What kind of thinking is that? Oh, goodness. The person behind you. If they want to just slap you in the back of the head right now, I think that's wrong. But who am I to say? <laughs> now, don't do it. <laughs> I just don't understand that kind of logic. Another lady said that uh, that's what we are. Excuse me. One lady said, and she was Catholic, and she had a cross on. Did you notice that? She, she immediately says that she's Catholic. She wanted to share her faith that she's a believer in Christ. But then she said, if you're a Christian, then you should let people have their choice. I don't know what Catholic church she is going to, but the Catholic church is staunchly pro-life. They'll tell you there's no middle ground. Another lady said that, quote, that's what we are as Americans, letting people have their freedom. Really? Freedom to do what? That makes sense. We're all about freedom. It just isn't Did you put a mask on this week? It's your body, your choice. 
What'd you put that mask on for? Some are wearing masks right now. Did you wear clothes when you went into Walmart this week? Why? It's your body, your choice. Did you drive 120 going down 199 this week? Well, especially not in uh, Lake Worth or Lakeside. Why didn't you drive 120? When the police officer stops you, you just say, hey, it's my body, my choice. And they'll tell you in your car, no, as they hand you the ticket, <laughs> no. Or the, the officer, as he's arresting you and putting a blanket around you, saying, no, it's not your body, your choice. There are limits to our rights. And it is what it is. In every society, in every society on this planet, there are limits to our freedoms, even in America. And so to, for us to segregate one, one subject and say, oh, well, okay, you're right. You don't have the right to do this and do that. Here's, here's the logic. Our government has asked us to wear masks. Should we wear a mask? This is rhetorical, don't answer. Should we wear a mask? The government has asked us to, when we go into businesses, wear a mask. Medically, is it a good idea? Many would say, yes, it is. Is it biblical for us to obey our government? Actually, I've shared that passage with you too. Paul says, obey your government. And if the government asks us to wear a mask, Paul would say, and I'm going to have to agree with Paul, we should wear a mask. I hate them. I can't breathe in those things. But Paul says, do your best. Don't cause trouble. Obey your government. So I wear a mask. Is it constitutional for government to force us to wear them? Now that's another discussion, and we don't have time for that. <laughs> another time. But the truth is, our government and every government exhibits a certain amount of control over your body. And the principal reason for this is that you, what you do with your body impacts others. The reason the police officer is going to give you a citation for driving 90 miles an hour is because, and the police officer may tell you this, you could have killed somebody. Now, you didn't kill somebody, I assume, and you're probably not going to kill somebody. Maybe the statistics are very low that you're going to kill somebody, but the possibility that you might affect the life and the health of somebody else limits the right of what you can do with your own body. You understand that? That's the same with a mask. In, in this mandate to wear a mask, and you've seen this on television many times, what the claim is, is the mask doesn't protect you. It's not really to protect you. It's to protect others from you. And you should wear a mask because if you don't wear a mask, hypothetically, it can, if you have COVID, you can infect somebody else. And while you may get over it just fine, the somebody else that you infect might be elderly or might have pre-existing conditions and they may die. And by the way, do people die from COVID? Yes, they do. My wife is a nurse. She works in a hospital. She will tell you. She's seen a number of people die from COVID. Every hospital does. People die from COVID. And all those people that died from COVID got it from somewhere or somebody. Who gave it to them? A family member, a friend. And there are probably many family members out there that feel really bad. They gave grandma COVID and she didn't make it. You understand, however the likelihood that you are going to infect somebody else is really, really low. We've gotten better at treating COVID, and so the chances are 3%, 2%, 1%, in some cases less than 1%. So it's very unlikely you're going to give somebody COVID, and even more unlikely that they're going to die as a result of the COVID you gave them. I, I don't know what the statistic is, but it's extremely low. And in reality, the same chances exist for all diseases that are contagious. You may have the flu and not even know it. It infected a dozen people. And one of those persons may die. And so you see that. Here's the logic of the government. The government is saying, look, we realize it's not likely, but on the slim chance that it may affect their health or it might cost them their life, just on the possibility, we're asking you to wear a mask. We're asking you to limit your personal freedoms and rights 
because we don't want, don't want what you do or what you do must not affect the health and the life of somebody else. But then they'll turn right around and say, oh, for abortion, it's your body, it's your right. Now, when a mother has an abortion, what are the odds that that abortion is going to affect the health and the life of that preborn child? Yeah, 99.999%. The only chance that that child has if, if the abortion is botched or somehow the baby is born alive. It does happen, by the way. We're going to see this in just a minute, but it is extraordinarily rare. And so I find the hypocrisy of our government staggering that they would be so concerned about our safety and our well-being, about our life, that they would say, you need to wear a mask because you just might hurt somebody else. But when it comes to abortion, even though it's going to kill the child for sure, it's your body, you're right, none of our business. I think they need to go one way or another. I think they need to come out this week and say abortion is wrong or you don't have to wear a mask because it's your body, you're right. But they're doing both. And I, I can't reconcile that in my mind. I just find that, do you find the a logic of that strange? And so, um, oh, all right, where was I? <laughs> um, I promise you, I, I promised you a while ago that I wouldn't be condescending and judgmental. I didn't say that about the government. But I'm not going to pretend either. Abortion is taking the life of another living, sentient being. And I believe it is wrong in God's eyes. It should be wrong in our eyes. Also, for us to turn a blind eye when this killing is taking place is wrong. If you were in your front yard, again, somebody drove by would you not want somebody to warn you? When it comes to this important biblical matter, the right to exist, I'm quite certain that God isn't interested in what political party you belong to or what candidate is the most liked or most messed up. I've learned that most candidates are pretty messed up. And you may say, well, I'm not going to vote for any of them because they're all messed up. So concerning life... I, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do nothing and say nothing. And there are those out, and, and listen, I understand, I feel you. Because there are times where I don't want to vote for anybody. That's politics. Do I believe that the right to exist is so important that it overrules and overrides other concerns about other candidates that I have? I have concerns about our government. And the answer is yes, the right to exist. What I'm telling you is that your party affiliation will not protect you on Judgment Day. Your party affiliation, Republican, Democrat, or any other, independent, will not protect you on Judgment Day. God's going to call you and I to an account. If you don't remember, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, for example, says this. So we make it our goal to please him, that is God or Christ, whether we are at home or in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now you know, and you and I understand, if you've been going to church very long at all, that apart from Christ, we are headed for judgment. You, me, and everybody. It is only by the blood of Christ and the mercy of God that we can be saved from our sins, forgiven and cleansed from our sins, redeemed and given eternal life in heaven. Other than that, we are all destined to judgment. That's not what he's talking about in this passage. He's not talking to lost people here. He's talking to saved people. He's talking to Christians. Now, you and I are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb if we're Christians and believers in Christ. We are destined for heaven, but we are still going to give an account to God on Judgment Day. I don't know how long that will take, maybe longer for some than others, but he says in verse 10, for we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. On that day, I promise God does, is not neutral about this matter. God's not neutral about anything. 
because he knows everything. He is the very source of right or wrong. Everything is black and white to God because God is the, is the source. You're not the source. I'm not the source. Our political parties aren't the source. Our government is not the source. It is God in him alone. And with God, everything is right or it's wrong. God is not neutral. And when he says to you or me on judgment day, and we will all be there, what were you doing? You didn't say anything. And we said, well, God, I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. And I get it. You know, they make us out to be the bad guy. If we're pro-life, we hate women, or we hate choice, or we hate freedom, or whatever. That's just politics. The truth is, we don't have to answer to them. What we have to answer to is, God, are you ready to answer to God for your stance about life? It's coming for you and for me. Now, I want to end with a testimony. I had to edit it for time. I'm sorry about that. Uh, So I cut it in about half. But this is the most powerful pro-life testimony I've ever heard, in part because the speaker is a survivor of an abortion. She was aborted. And if you've been here for very many years, you've seen this video before because I've shown it before. I just find it to be a very compelling and beautiful testimony. Her name is Gianna Jessen, and she is also a faithful believer in Christ. Watch this clip. I'm adopted and my biological mother was 17 and so was my biological father. She was seven and a half months pregnant when she decided to go to Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in the world. And they counseled her to have a late-term saline abortion, which is a saline salt solution that is injected into the mother's womb. The baby gulps that solution, it burns the baby inside and out, and then she is to deliver a dead baby within 24 hours. And to everyone's great shock and surprise, uh, I didn't arrive dead, but alive on April the 6th, 1977, in a Los Angeles County abortion clinic. What's fantastic about this, about the perfect timing of my arrival, is that the abortionist was not on duty yet. So he wasn't even given the opportunity to continue on with his plan for my life, which was death. And I know that I'm in a government building, and a beautiful one it is, and I love your country as well as my own. But I know in the age that we live in, it is not at all politically correct to say the name of Jesus Christ in places like this, to to bring him into these sorts of meetings because his name can make people so terribly uncomfortable. But I didn't survive so I could make everyone comfortable. I survived so I could stir things up a bit. And I have a great time doing it. (laughs) And so I was delivered alive, as I've already said, after 18 hours. I should be blind, I should be burned, I should be dead. And yet I'm not. You know what is fantastic vindication is the fact that the abortionist had to sign my birth certificate. (laughs) So I know who he is. And it also says for any skeptic listening on my medical records, born during saline abortion. Ha! They didn't win. I've done some research on the man that performed the abortion on me. And his clinics are the largest chain of clinics in the United States of America, and they gross $70 million a year. I read him say, I read a quote from him at some point uh, several years ago, and he said, I have aborted over a million babies, and I consider it my passion. I tell you these things because, listen, ladies and gentlemen, we are in an interesting battle, whether we realize it or not, in this world. 
It is a battle between life and death. What side are you on? So a nurse called an ambulance and had me transferred to a hospital, which is absolutely miraculous. Generally, the practice at the time, and up until 2002, was, in, in my country, was to end the life of an abortion survivor by strangulation, suffocation, leaving the baby there to die, or throwing the baby away. But in, on August the 5th, 2002, my extraordinary President Bush signed into law the Born Alive Infants Protection Act to prevent that from occurring anymore. You see, we're playing for, for keeps. We're playing for, I mean, I'm hoping to be hated by the time that I die so that I can feel God about me and understand what it was to be hated. I mean, he was hated. Christ was hated. And not that I look forward to being hated, but I know along my journey, I know I'm already hated because I declare life. I say, you didn't get me. The silent Holocaust didn't win over me. And my mission, ladies and gentlemen, many, uh, among many things, is this. To infuse humanity into a debate that we have just compartmentalized and set on a shelf and said it is an issue. We have removed our emotions. We are becoming harder. Do you really want that? How much are you willing to take and how much are you willing to risk to, to speak the truth in love and graciousness and stand up and at least be willing to be hated? Or at the end of the day, is it all about you? Or me? And so, after that I was placed in an emergency foster care home where they decided they didn't like me very well and as I'm fond of saying, I don't know how you could not adore me right from the start. <laughs> what is wrong with these people? But they didn't. You see, I've been hated since conception by so many and loved by so many more, but most especially by God. I'm his girl. You don't mess with God's girl. I got a sign on my forehead that says, you better be nice to me because my father runs the world. <laughs> so after I was placed in the mean home, I was taken out of the mean home and placed into another home, a beautiful home, Penny's home, and she, she said by this time I was 17 months old, 32 pounds of dead weight, and diagnosed with what I considered to be the gift of cerebral palsy, which was caused directly by the lack of oxygen to my brain while I was trying to survive. Now I am just compelled to say this. If abortion is merely about women's rights, ladies and gentlemen, then what were mine? There was not a radical feminist standing up and yelling about how my rights were being violated that day. In fact, my life was being snuffed out in the name of women's rights. And ladies and gentlemen, I would not have cerebral palsy. Had I not survived all of this? So when I hear the appalling, disgusting argument that we should have abortions because the child just might be disabled, oh, the horror that fills my heart. Ladies and gentlemen, there are things that you will only be able to learn by the weakest among us. 
And when you snuff them out, you are the one that loses. The Lord looks after them, but you are the one that will suffer forever. And what arrogance, what absolute arrogance. And it has been an argument for so long in this human place that we live that the stronger should dominate the weaker, should determine who lives or dies. The arrogance of that. Don't you realize that you cannot make your own heart beat? Don't you realize that all the power that you think you possess, you really possess none of it. It is the mercy of God that sustains you. Even when you hate him. All right, we'll put that on our our Facebook page, and you can watch the, other, the last half of that testimony. So it's a powerful testimony. I know I probably told you this before, and we have to go, but it is extraordinary when we think about only, what, 170 years ago, uh, slavery was legal in our country. And I know that they call this issue progressive today, abortion, uh, and that's just an illusion But as we think back, it is difficult for you and I to comprehend how our forefathers could have justified in their mind owning slaves, capturing and owning slaves and treating them and believing that they are not human beings. They're not persons, they're property. How primitive. Even beside the right and wrong of it, it's just primitive. That was only 170 years ago. Now we think here in the 21st century, we are so advanced. We have, we have really come a long way. No, no. 300 years from now in the 24th century, if mankind is still here, and I've told you this, I guarantee you, if they're here 300 years from now, they'll look back on now, 2020, and they will think the same thing that you and I think about 100 or 200 years ago. We are primitive. We have learned very little since the time of slavery, because we're actually debating whether or not a human life is allowed to exist. I think that they will find that extraordinary, and I believe, and I am confident, if the Lord allows us to develop that far for another three or four hundred years, that our great-great-great-great-grandchildren will look back and they will be stunned at how we could have been so primitive as to kill our own children and call it a right. We have no right. Any more than our parents had a right to end our life. God is the giver of life. It is for him to give and him to take away and him alone. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today and we ask for forgiveness. We, we are stunned into silence too much. And we, want, we don't want to be judgmental or obnoxious or mean-hearted about it. We don't want to be condemning, and we should not be condemning because we are not the judge. At the same time, while we are not to be condemning of people, we acknowledge that there is right or wrong in your word. We acknowledge that you describe pre-born children as alive, that you knew Jeremiah while he was still in the womb. We acknowledge that our technology has advanced to the point that we just have no excuse. There's not even a debate anymore as to whether or not a preborn child is alive. Now the debate is, do we care? Or do we have a right to snuff out that life just because it's inconvenient? Father, forgive us. I pray that this one subject would compel us more than any political party, many, more than any candidate, that we would make whatever decisions we need to make as the United States, as a, as a part of a democratic republic, that we do our part to help this nation advance to the point of respecting life. How difficult it was during that civil war for Abraham Lincoln and those who would follow him to respect life enough to free slaves and to put their life on the line to free slaves.
And how much more should we not put ours on the line to respect and honor all life? As you're praying, no one's looking around. I'm going to ask you today, would you be willing to spend some time in prayer that God will change the hearts of our nation and this world? There was a country just this last week who, to the shock of so many in the world, changed their laws to make most abortion illegal. I consider that progressive, truly progressive. They simply honor life. And I believe that the day will come in this country when we will progress to the place that we respect all life. I wish I could do both. I wish I could give mothers the option or women the option to do anything that they want and have lives protected, but we can't always do that. Somebody's Right has to give in. And I believe the most fundamental right that we have is the right to exist, the right to life. And I believe that the Word of God tells us that. Would you be willing to pray that our laws would be changed, our nation would be changed, our hearts would be changed? I want to challenge you, if you're a parent, to teach your children the value of life And that with God, there is no gray, neutral, middle ground. In His eyes, it's either right or wrong. And in our eyes, it must be the same. That we need to take a stand, make a choice, and ask for God's guidance and protection. It could be God is calling you to accept Christ today. You want to make a public decision or you or your family want to come and join. We had a family come and join in the first service. We want you to know you're welcome here at First Baptist Church. Just come down and say, Pastor, we'd like to join here in a few moments. Or you just want to come and kneel and pray for the election that's coming up and that God will lead us toward life. Right now, would you stand? No one's looking around. And as you stand, as you continue to pray, This invitation is for you right now. You come. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.